Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 58, God is in the House. Well, it's been about a week since I published the first half of this interview with Steve Atkerson, and I'll recap that in a moment, but I just wanted to say that I know that I said at the end of that interview that I was going to publish the second half the next day. There are a couple of reasons I changed my mind. One is that had I not done that, you would have ended up waiting three weeks for the next episode, uh, because it's it's not until another two weeks from now that I have my next episode lined up, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um... But another reason why I did it is because historically when I've published two-parters together, um, the first half the first half of that uh, episode gets downloaded half the number of times as the second one, and I think that that has something to do with the way that podcatchers podcatchers like iTunes and other programs are set up to automatically download. They'll they'll automatically download the latest episode, but not the one before that. So I wanted to put the first half out there and give you some time to download and listen to it and ingest it, uh, digest it. Um, before giving you the second episode to listen to, the second half to listen to, which we're going to do today. So for those and a few other reasons, I, I decided to wait almost a week now. Um, but I hope that uh, I hope that the interview is still fresh in your mind. And if it's not, like I said, I'm going to recap that in a moment. But before I do, uh, I want to invite you to participate in my show a little bit in some upcoming episodes. Uh, in two weeks from now, um, two weeks from today exactly, actually, I'm going to be interviewing, Lord willing, uh, Larry Dixon. He's the author of The Other Side of the Good News, and he's a author that Edward Fudge interacts with in his book, in the, in the third edition of his book. And Larry Dixon graciously agreed to come on my show and talk about the traditional view of hell and uh, defend it and, and explain why it is that he thinks annihilationism uh, isn't the uh, biblical doctrine of hell, as Edward Fudge would insist that it is. Uh, I'm excited for that. Um, and then, uh, and, and so I'm, the reason I mention this is because I'd love for those of you who are um, listening, both traditionalists and annihilationists, because I have listeners from both persuasions, I'd love it if you would send me some questions or, or thoughts that you'd like me to share with Larry Dixon to get his feedback. Um, you know, I think that you guys will be able to ask even better questions than I can. And so if you have any for him, um, please do email me uh, and let me know. Uh, also, I mentioned last, we- uh, last week in-, in the first half of this interview, I believe, that uh, Turretin Fan um, has agreed to debate an evangelical universalist named Jason Pratt. Uh, they're going to be discussing uh, or debating whether or not five selected passages from Scripture teach that, uh, that there will be some sinners who are never saved from their sins. Um, so if you have any thoughts or questions that you'd like posed, there is, like the last debate that I moderated between Michael Burgos, uh, and James Anderson, there'll be a question and answer period where I'm going to present them with my questions, but I'd really like to be able to present them with questions that you guys have, both for Turretin Fan as a defender of the traditional view, uh, that of particularism, namely that some people will not ever be saved, uh, or to Jason Pratt, who will be defending the view that there that there that there will no there will be no people at all who at one point or another won't be saved. 
In other words, everybody will be saved. He, he's a universalist. He, like I said, his, uh, he's an author at a website called evangelicaluniversalist.com. So if you have questions for either of them that you'd like posed during the Q&A period of the debate, please send me them. Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to uh, give them a variety of questions and not just ones of my own making. And then the third, there's another debate that uh, I've mentioned a couple of times now, I think, that will come in November or later between Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega, Alpha and Omega Ministries um, and a Unitarian who goes by the name of Patrick Navas. Uh, they'll be debating the Trinity uh, uh, to some extent or another. We haven't worked out the details like the debate resolution and stuff like that. But again, if you have any questions either for James White, the Trinitarian, or for Patrick Navas, the Unitarian, um, uh, please send them my way. Again, I, I think that uh, I'd love to pose them questions that you guys have rather than just ones of my own making. So there's three episodes, Larry Dixon on Hell, Turret and Fan and Jason Pratt on Universalism, and James White and Patrick Novice on Unitarianism. If you have any questions that you'd like me to ask them, please send them my way. Um, and uh, I, I'd appreciate that. So let me recap how the first half of this interview with Steve Atkerson went. We, we got to know a little bit about Steve and his history and the New Testament Reformation Fellowship that he represents. Uh, we talked about how it is that he became convicted of the importance of house churches having come from a traditional background of large churches, or at least normal-sized churches. Uh, Steve admitted that, he, that what he and NTRF advocate seems a little strange and unfamiliar when it comes to church practice, but insisted that the doctrines that they advocate are completely orthodox. Uh, and he cited, in particular, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is a good one. Um, so I have no reason to doubt that. We talked about why it is that Steve thinks that New Testament patterns of church practice are not merely descriptive, but are, in fact, prescriptive. Uh, he cited some passages that seem to talk about the universal practice of all Christian churches. He talked about, uh, he, he pointed to passages in which um, the audience is commended or even commanded uh, to obey traditions um, that were passed on to them by the apostles. Uh, we talked about the seeming inconsistency of modern churches which which choose uh, to follow some patterns of New Testament church practice and not others. Um, and it was at this point that we transitioned into the second half of the interview to talk about two specific uh, New Testament patterns of church practice, namely house churches. That'll be the first part of this second half of the interview. And uh, the other one is uh, participatory church meetings, which um, I'm not going to explain right now. You can listen to the interview for that. So uh, with that recap and an introduction to the second half of the interview, let's move right into it. Well, let's move on to one of the examples that you just gave, uh, the, that of meeting in people's homes. Uh, the book that you sent me is titled House Church. And while house churches aren't the only pattern of practice that you advocate, it's probably one of the most obvious and, and I think kind of sets the stage for the rest of them. So so can you give us some details? How, how is it that, um, uh, or, or do, do house churches like yours meet in one specific house? How many people meet? Where within a home do you meet? Those What is that? What, do all the, what are all those details? Well, it looks like in the New Testament, they tended to meet in the same home because often you'll have greetings to a certain person, whether that's Philemon, Aquila, and Priscilla, and to the church that meets in their home. So it sort of implies that they always went to the same house. But in practice, what we do 
is often we do rotate it between suitable homes. Like right now in our house church, we've got four homes that are suitable to host church that we rotate between. And we'll have it for two weeks in each home and then go to the next home. And that way the host family doesn't get so worn out from constantly entertaining. Mm. And also your neighbors don't get as irritated because uh, most people here in America drive to church. And one of our families drives up every week in three cars. And so you start choking the neighborhood street with cars. And if you do that every week, well, you can get in trouble with people don't appreciate that. So by moving to different homes, that also doesn't irritate the neighbors so much. So we feel like as long as you're in a home, that that's kind of the right setting. And and so we do, from a practical perspective, rotate from house to house. Although there's nothing wrong with keeping it in the same house every week if, if that's the way it works out. Now, archaeologists have found homes, pre-Constantinian homes, that – clearly were church assembly places because they would find like Christian mosaic tiles on the floor and stuff like that. So they know a church met there. And it, it seems obvious the early church met in the homes of the wealthier people. They were a little bit larger, could hold more people, and, and they often would modify the homes, like tear out a wall or something. And that's what we do as well, Chris. We'll uh, Often we'll close in a carport maybe a two-car garage, close that in, or tear out a wall between a living room and a den, or add on to the back of a house, maybe a room that's like 25 by 25, something like that. Not to make a big church building behind it, but just to accommodate. We think, you asked me about the numbers of people, we think in terms of scores of people, not hundreds, but not tens, twenties. Hmm. In other words, 20, 40, 60 people in, in a typical house church. And so we try to meet in places that will accommodate that many. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, which is a passage describing a meeting there in Corinth, and, and all the different spiritual gifts that are mentioned that are going on there, I mean, it's obvious that wasn't just a couple of families. This, this was a lot of people. Again, not thousands of people, probably not hundreds of people. Not tens either. So we, we try to look for places to meet that will hold scores of people. And there's nothing magical about meeting in a home. <laughs> if, if, if everybody in the church is in a tiny little house for some reason, and, uh, and you just can't get more than a couple of families in, in the living room, well, then run a place. That's fine. But what we're arguing is churches ought to be smaller rather than larger, because the kinds of things the New Testament talks about, churches doing, work better in that smaller setting. And if you can possibly meet in a home, that frees up that much more money to go to support missionaries or people in need. And so um, we would just question the practical wisdom of building these massive cathedrals to hold all these people that's used, you know, let's say once a week, and you got all that inventory and property just sitting there idle most of the time. So um, anyway, that's um, so we're talking about scores of people, and we do rotate from house to house. What else did you ask me? Oh, I did, I'm just curious where within a home you meet, but you kind of answered that question. I, I guess I was just kind of getting an idea of, of what a house church looks like. But the next question I have for you is, is there any disputing that the New Testament presents us with just this kind of pattern, a, a pattern of believers meeting in house churches? Just what is the biblical evidence? 
Well, the people who don't like house churches always run to the early chapters of Acts where the church held meetings in the temple courts. And mm. that's, their, that's their ace that they always trump on the table. Uh, but in that same passage, a couple of times it talks about them meeting from house to house as well as in the temple courts. Once you leave Jerusalem and you go out in the rest of the Roman Empire, Every time it ever mentions where a church met, it's always in someone's home. Hmm. And remember, these are Jewish, mostly Jewish people who've come out of the synagogues. They've got a mindset of building synagogues. They've got the money to build synagogues, but they don't build synagogues. They don't build. And the Romans saw the church as a sect of Judaism. Judaism was protected within the Roman Empire. Thus, they were, had the freedom to build their synagogues and do all that Jewish stuff they did. And, and generally, the New Testament epistles present the Romans as the good guys, often coming to the aid of the persecuted Christians being unlawfully harassed by unbelieving Judaism. And so I think they could have probably built a Christian synagogue if they wanted to, but they never did. And there's an archaeology book written called Church Life Before Constantine, Antipacum. And um, the author points out they've never found a church building prior to the time of Constantine. Hmm. When, uh, you know, shortly after Constantine legalized Christianity, they made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And literally overnight, pagan temples were turned into Christian cathedrals. And so, uh, in fact, they, at sword point, ran Christians out of the homes into these cathedrals. So, um, I think the fact that nobody built one, where somebody somewhere could have built one, says <laughs> that I, I think it was it was they didn't need them. For, for what they understood church was supposed to be, a family, they didn't, they didn't have the concept of the need to build a uh, uh, this big edifice. And really, most Christians are going to build a building to hold more people than will fit in the living room of a moderately well-to-do home. And we would argue that when you got that many people in a single congregation, you start to defeat the purpose for having a church in the first place. And so when we go back, Chris, to the Jerusalem example of them meeting in the temple courts, well, first I would point out they didn't own the temple. Mm. Okay. Second... I'm not even so sure that they're regular church meetings. I mean, it looks to me like they're doing evangelism and ministry. Sure. And Paul in Ephesus, parallel to the church meetings, rented the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They didn't have church there. Paul had what I'll call ministry meetings there. So we, we draw a distinction between a regular church meeting and a special ministry meeting. And, and we would argue that a ministry meeting, if it's not a church meeting, can be as big as you can find a building to have it in, as many people want to turn up for it. So, like, I remember years ago when I was young, young Christian, Bill Gothard, he used to travel the U.S. doing these things called Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. And he'd come to Atlanta, and they would rent the Civic Center and pack that thing out. Thousands of people all week long with him doing these principles of Christian life. Well, nobody ever thought that was a church. They were right. churches, people from church 
which is all over Atlanta, at it. But see, that was Bill Gothard's ministry of teaching. And uh, years ago, Billy Graham used to come to Atlanta, and they'd run out the baseball stadium. Well, that's great. Is that for church? No, definitely not. That was Billy Graham's ministry of evangelism. And then uh, I think of the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria. They'd come to town, and they'd rent out a venue here in Atlanta. And again, pack it out with Christians from churches all over Atlanta, and they'd have this wonderful praise time of worship. That wasn't church either. That was their ministry of worship. So we don't have any problem with that. And we would argue that what you see Paul doing there when he rented the lecture hall of Tyrannus was evangelism and discipleship not church meetings, and and so too in the temple courts, what you've got is a situation where you've got 12 apostles and thousands and thousands of brand new converts who can't go home hmm. because there's no church when they get there. They've got to be trained, they've got to be taught, and there was a window there when obviously they had the freedom to have these huge meetings in the temple for evangelism, and teaching and training, all the while also meeting house to house. So, if 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 uh, if a brother's got a teaching ministry and thousands of people want to show up every week to hear him teach, we think that's great. We just wouldn't call that church. Sure, we call it his teaching ministry because everything you see that's called church in the New Testament is again small enough to fit in somebody's home. Well, let, let me uh, come back on that then, because there are a bunch of places in the New Testament which mention the church of some city. Uh, you know, as, as preterists, you and I are probably both fans of Revelation, and, you know, as we know, the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to churches. How, how could a small house church facilitate the gathering together of every single believer in, say, Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum? It couldn't. Um, absolutely couldn't. But I don't know that you're going to see examples of that either. Um, the Bible talks, it, it seems to talk philosophically sometimes about the church in, as composed of all the members of a certain city. Hmm. It doesn't mean they necessarily all met together. So you might talk about the church of Atlanta. Well, okay. But the church of Atlanta never all gets together for a meeting. Right. And so too. To the uh, or the church in London. In fact, it talks about uh, the church of Samaria at one point in the book of Acts. Well, Samaria is not even a city; it's a <laughs> region. Mm. So, and you know, and so today we'll talk about the church of China. Well, it's not an, the church of China is not one organized entity. It's it's a philosophical concept. Like you might have a phone book with the names of everybody that's got a phone in your city. Okay. But that's, they're not organized in any way. They just don't have phones. And so philosophically, you talk about the church of Ephesus. Who knows how many people were in Ephesus as believers? Who knows how many house churches there were? It doesn't mean they all met together. So it'd be kind of like, you know, the, the church with a big C would be the, the universal church. A church with a small C would be a local house church. And then you've got like a church with a medium-sized C, which is the church in a particular region. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah, you could say you got the... Uh, the micro church, which was a house church, and the metro church, which was the philosophical listing of all the Christians in that city or region. And then you've got, of course, the 
universal church, as you said it. So, yeah. I see. Okay. Now, in the book that you sent me, you list a number of benefits to house churches, and, and you've alluded to it already, which suggests that this pattern might have been intentional and purposeful rather than coincidental. Uh, what are some of the benefits to a house church? What, what are some of the reasons why the New Testament authors, the, the apostles, might have, in fact, desired house churches, intended them? Well, number one reason, I don't mean to prioritize these, but one reason is in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Mosaic Covenant, God was very particular about the construction of the temple, wasn't he? And, and all, all the detail, or the tabernacle, and the temple later, of all the detailed instructions on how to do that. And yet in the New Testament, there's nothing mm. about building a religious building. Well, okay, first I'd say that should get your attention. But second, when it does talk about it, Peter, you know, it talks about we are living stones built together into a spiritual temple, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So as living stones, it's just a different picture. We've gone from type to reality. And so I think to some extent, you, you remember the the woman at the well, and Jesus is talking to her, and uh, she's all hung up on which mountain you should worship on, Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. And you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, look, woman, time's coming when true worshipers worship neither mountain but in spirit and in truth. And I think a lot of people, a lot of pretend Christians, a lot of carnal Christians, they associate an unreasonable holiness and sanctification to church buildings. And it's it's just religion incorporated. You've got, I mean, classical man-made religion, you've got some holy building that you take care of, and you've got some holy man you support. If you go do those things, two things, you're right with God. And and so this is the opposite of that. And mm. in the early Roman Empire, one of the criticisms of the Christians is that they were atheists. Why not? Well, I mean, they didn't have church buildings. Hmm. They didn't have temples for their gods, so they must be atheists, you see. And But so I think from a reality perspective, there's a lot of dead traditional churches. They, but they've got the buildings. They've got an endowment. And it's like Ichabod is the headless horseman. It just keeps walking. The spirit left years ago. But the thing's still functional. Whereas uh, with a house church, when it dies, there's no corpse. It's gone. It's either real or it's dead, just almost always. And and the nature, we think, of church is, is, is to be like a family, not a country club, not a corporation, not, you know, it, you're supposed to know everybody there. Hmm. And it is like a family. If you get, the bigger you get, the less that is a reality. So it, it needs to be small enough you can know everybody there, you can interact with everybody there. And so in some of those big churches I've been involved with, I didn't know everybody there. And we'd have Wednesday night suppers, and I'd go there, and I'd find the few people that I knew to sit with. But 90% of the people there, I had no clue who they were. So <laughs> yeah. it was like eating at Morrison's. I just had a table with a few friends at Morrison's, and there's not a family meal aspect to that at all. And And so, again, the family aspect. Another thing you look at in the New Testament is uh, we haven't talked about it much, but they had participatory church meetings. It, it wasn't so much centered on the music leader and the pastor. It was any brother there could significantly contribute 
to the proceedings of the meeting. Well, that works good in a smaller setting where, again, you know everybody there, and it's like a family. But in a big setting, that doesn't work well because one of the greatest fears people have is public speaking. Yeah. And so you're going to have people with microphones, runners to run microphones up to people so they can share with 5,000 of their closest friends what God did in their life that see it. So that's – if. So anyway, and, and so again, smaller fits that. And two, when you have a big crowd, I mean, there is the nut factor. And you've got X amount of unhinged people there who you don't want them saying anything. And you're going to be sorry if they do. Whereas in a smaller group, you do know everybody. Well, there's that love angle. You can bear with one another, even the people that aren't as well adjusted. And also even you can <laughs> – you know who they are, and if they say something kooky, you can – you, you you value it accordingly, but also you can control them better because it is small mm. and it removes, you know, one thing a lot of uh, would-be messiahs are looking for is a big venue to, to proclaim to. And you don't have that in the house church. There's not thousands of people there to impress. And so it loses the uh, the attraction to a lot of those would-be messiahs anyway. So um, and two, we're going to argue the New Testament form of church government was, was by congregational consensus, where the elders work to get the whole church in agreement about something that needs to be decided. And that works well in a small setting where you do know each other and you love each other and you can work the relationships and build consensus. That's never going to work when you've got hundreds and thousands of people in a church. And so churches necessarily go from consensus rule to command they don't have any other choice and the pastor becomes more and more like the ceo of a corporation he has to so we're arguing there are practical benefits of it so when you do church in the testament way it is like a family you do fit in you are significant you can contribute meaningfully to what goes on it's a wonderful time when the church comes together of fellowship and one anothering and because you don't have this overhead of a large building to have to pay for and grounds to upkeep, that releases a lot of money to go toward other things that arguably might be a little bit more important, missionaries or Christians that are suffering in disaster-stricken areas and uh, support of local qualified elders and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, another thing, I'll, I'll just quit on this one, Chris. Okay. Um the Baptist church I was in here in Atlanta, the last time they did church discipline against someone was in 1950. And they hadn't done it since. Well, it's not because they were all so holy. But churches today start worshiping at the altar of big numbers. Well, if you do church discipline, mm. well, it's going to upset people. And they might not come. It also is a matter of uh, people don't know each other. They don't know what's going on in each other's lives. And, you know, figuratively, you put on your, your, your suit and your tie and you go to church and you look like you've got your act together. But, you know, lawyers wear ties <laughs> to establish formality between the, them and the clients. And that's what that, a tie, you, get, you know, used to be. You get all dressed up, go to church. That says, I'm fine. Don't get too close hmm. to keep your distance. And, and so that's not what church is supposed to be about. So we think there's a lot of advantages of doing it the New Testament way. Yeah, I understand, and, and I, it, I tend to 
agree. And, I, you know, I, I didn't send you this question I'm about to ask you in advance because I just thought of it, but I happen to know you've been asked it before, so I don't think I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> uh, a, a lot of churches, um, I think, have recognized many of the benefits that you've been talking about. And so what they'll do is they'll have their weekend services with the entire congregation, but then they'll, they'll, uh, you know, um, facilitate a, a ministry of, of small groups where the small groups will meet in people's homes to have the kind of intimacy and fellowship and some of the things you've described. Why do you think that that, um, may be a step in the right direction, but isn't the end goal? It is a step in the right direction, but and it might accomplish a lot of the same things, so I appreciate what they've done. It's a matter of usually those groups are secondary. They're seen as ministries of the church. They're secondary. They're optional. They're faddish to some extent. And as soon as the minister of small groups gets called away to another church, well, the new regime, they might not bother to replace him. And next thing you know, the small groups go to seed. Also, the small groups are often controlled from the top. Mm. There's not really, I mean, the First Corinthians 14 church meeting. It looks to me like is prescriptive, and it's it's really not that. It's it's very much controlled what goes on. You know, usually they'll talk about the pastor sermon or something like that. Usually they're age age segregated, and usually they don't let kids in there often. So there's a lot about it that's still a long way from the New Testament, and we would argue that. The small meetings in the home are primary, and that really is church. And that secondary are the big hoopla meetings in the building. Hmm. And that's what's the ministry, and that's what ought to come and go with the minister of big hoopla meetings. And so it's just putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And <laughs> it, but it is good. I mean, I appreciate them doing that. But And it's a step back toward the New Testament, and I think it will bless a lot of people. But, again, I'm just saying... Well, why not, in God's providence, as God allows, do it the New Testament way? Sure. There is, there's a network of house churches in Ohio. This, I think it's in Columbus. There's something like 400 house churches. And the elders of the various house churches bought and built a building for teaching purposes. Mm. And they were very clear, this is not church. This is our teaching ministry. Churches in the home. And, and they don't, they call it central teaching. They don't sing in the building. They do evangelism, teaching, and elder training. I don't have any problem with that. I think that's great because they got the emphasis right no. on the house churches. And secondary is the big ministry meetings they have. So it's just a matter of emphasis and, but ultimately that emphasis does translate into long-term differences. And it is not the whole enchilada that you see in the New Testament. That's all. Okay. But now, I'm happy for it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely. Now, I have a few questions for you that, uh, that are, that I'm going to be, I'm going to be playing the role of my wife's advocate here. Um, because when I, when I told her that I was going to be interviewing a, a house church advocate, she shared some concerns with me that I want to run by you to see how you would respond to or mitigate them. Just be careful because since, since she's my wife, you've got to be really careful about how you word your responses. Yeah, right. Um, now, the, the first the first thing is this. She and I are members of a relatively large church where, because there are so many children of various ages, they're able to get involved with each other doing things like missions, uh, leading leading smaller kids in small groups, putting on plays, other kinds of things. And, and my wife feels like when kids have the opportunity to worship, learn, and serve together at church separate from their parents – 
It encourages them to grow in their own walk and not simply parrot what their parents believe. And she, and she wonders if this would be possible in a small house church where you wouldn't have as very many children and they'd be, they'd be of different ages. What do you think? No, you wouldn't have that at all. So if that's what's important to you, you won't like house church. <laughs> okay. The, the It's kind of like uh, some people are adamant about homeschooling. Hmm. And they move heavens and earth to be involved with a church that supports homeschooling. And, of course, others are not so sold on homeschooling. And, and, and so if you want to put it in that same kind of category, um, we really believe that the New Testament example is for the children of all ages to stay in the meeting with their parents, not to be somewhere else. And, um, for instance, Paul wanted the letter to the Ephesians to be read aloud, as was common with a lot of the letters he wrote. And in that reading of the letter we get to around chapter six and he's got instructions specifically for the children to obey the parents in the lord for this is right and the first commandment with a promise well if the children were off somewhere else in children's church they never would have heard that read would they and and so too you might recall that when jesus was teaching and there were some kids and the disciples started shooing the kids away jesus didn't like that very much he got mad at him about it. And I remember uh, when Paul was leaving somewhere, was it Troas? I can't remember. But all the, the disciples followed him to the to the boat on the seashore there, along with all their wives and children. So I, you know, I really get the idea that the kids stayed with the parents in the meeting. I think it's important, generally speaking, for kids to see their parents in worship and how they interact with other adults we feel like it's the parents job to teach their children about the lord not the churches originally sunday school as an example was started as an evangelistic ministry to get the street kids in england some exposure to the gospel because their parents weren't teaching them and no self-respecting christian would ever send his kid to sunday school that's like spiritual reform school. It's like saying you were a failure as a parent. <laughs> now, of course, I know that's changed, but that's the way it was originally. So we we feel like it's the parents' job to teach their kids, and we do want our kids to parrot our beliefs because, you know, whereas we always think that we're right or else we wouldn't do what we do, we don't think we're always right because we know we could be wrong. So, well, we very much want our kids to believe what we believe, but at the same time, we do expose them to other things. The... A lot of kids, we're not opposed necessarily to a bunch of kids doing things together outside of church. Like, for instance, we often will have a, a, a Friday night teenage Bible study. Mm. And um, and then a lot of the kids get together and do stuff. And the parents with kids of similar ages are always getting together and do stuff. So I think outside the church, there's a lot of natural opportunities for that to happen. And a lot of times our kids will go to... Other churches, more traditional churches, if they've got a youth group and some big thing going on, they'll go get involved with that because we're not we're not anti everybody else. But we don't, frankly, we don't put a very high importance on that particular aspect of it. Meaning, we think the kids should be there with the adults. We think it's mostly the parents' job to teach them, and um, we kind of like them parroting what we believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> like, <that's> good. <laughs> fair enough. I, I I think that. 
hopefully what I said ca- came through clearly. I mean, I, it's not that I don't want my kids to believe what I believe. It's that I want them, uh, I want their to believe, their beliefs to be their own at some point. I want them to have a true faith and, and not just repeat the faith that I have, if that makes any sense. But, but, but I think, I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying that, that the church meeting is, is for a particular purpose. Some of these other things that have value in them are not are not are not the the purpose of church meetings and to accomplish those things if people want to do them um then they can network together with other house churches for example to set up meetings for children to to do some of the things i've described does that sound about right well, you, you said that better than me yeah <laughs> okay. in other words so let's say your wife as an example let's say y'all are in a house church and she really has a burden to see those things that you asked me about accomplished if if god gives her that as a ministry See, what she would do in a house church setting is go around within her house church and nearby house churches and start a ministry parallel, you know, outside the church to see this happen. And she could have also obviously involved children from any other church, whether it's Baptist or mm. Presbyterian or anything else. So yes, this would to us be a ministry area of freedom that you can absolutely do if you want to do. And if, if, if you think it's important and other people think it's important and it doesn't violate any scripture, Wonderful. Okay. I think I understand then. Uh, but then this leads me to the, the next, the next thought that my wife shared with me, and it has to do with the resources that, uh, modern typical churches might have at their disposal, um, for things like serving the community and for helping member families in need. Uh, the, the church that we, we are members of, for example, has been able to raise a lot of money and send groups of, uh, groups of members on mission trips around the world. We've been able to send thousands of tents to families in Haiti who were forced to live on the street. Uh, and, and, and locally within our church, uh, family, when, when member families Families have various kinds of medical emergencies or they've lost a job or whatever. The church has the financial resources to be able to help. And with, you know, a thousand or more members, there are many people who can give of their time and resources to meet those emergencies needs. Do you think that it might be more difficult to give and serve in these kinds of ways and to meet a struggling family's needs in a small house church? I guess it could be. It depends on the nature of the need. You should be networked with other house churches and other Christian ministries to help with that. But on the other hand, the Atlanta Journal ran a study of U.S. Protestant congregations, and um, the vast majority of money that was given was spent internally on local staff and building maintenance, and a very small percentage went outside the church to the kinds of stuff maybe you're talking about here. Whereas I think in the house church, those percentages are going to be about reversed. Where mm. we, because we're not spending money on the buildings, we have more disposable income. It's not as many of us, but we have more income to give. So in a typical house church, you're not going to have that many needy families. You're going to have it. It, it varies, but you might have one needy family. Mm. Well, that can that need can be met. So it's not. See, you have a thousand people in your church. You're going to have a whole lot more needy families, whereas in the house church, they're dispersed among the churches. And you know them better, and you know their lifestyles and how they're really living and what they're doing with their money. And because people, if they see it's a genuine need, they are a lot more moved to give sacrificially because they see them every week. They talk to them every week, and they see the empty pantry, and they call and the phone's cut off, and they they know what's going on. Hmm. But also, regards missions, we regularly parade missionaries through and people in our church give, and I would say sacrificially, to various missionaries around the world. And so we're just 
we're just one little house church, but we I know there's a, a church planter in India that's fully funded by people in our church. We completely built a house for a Russian church planter, and we give substantial sums of money to a uh, church planter in China. And uh, so, and you know, we're we're just one little house church. Plus, other people come through that people sign up to give to on a monthly basis, like there's a missionary in Turkey that we give to. So, I mean, that I know people in the church give to. So I think, um, I think as a percentage, you'd find we give a lot more money, although since we're just one little church, sure, the total numbers won't be that great compared to a big church's total numbers. But when I think a thousand Christians in one church building that are burdened with the obligations of maintaining the sanctuary and the property and all that versus a thousand Christians dispersed in a hundred house churches. That you're gonna, or maybe fifty house churches, you're gonna have a a lot more money given through the house church network than you would. Um, I tell you what, when when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, there was a house church there. It had ten families in it, and seven out of the ten lost their homes. Mm. And and I sent out one email. Saying these guys need help, and we got in eighty thousand dollars. Wow! So I mean, it's a good concern, and but I think, yeah, I think a lot of house churches network together can do a lot of good. Well, and that and that network word seems to be to be the key. It, it, it might be that people uh, have a misconception that house churches, because because the word autonomous is sometimes used. Sometimes people will think that house churches are. Uh, Independent, not not only in terms of um, uh, you know local rule, if that's the right way to put it, but 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 literally completely in, in independent from anybody else. They have nothing to do with any other house church. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that's the opposite of the truth. That that house churches do network together, and so even though they don't congregate together in a large building, um, they they are very close and, and are able to accomplish some of these kinds of uh, uh, giving that we've been talking about. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it ought to be. Uh, going back to my Baptist roots, each Baptist church is autonomous, and yet the typical Southern Baptist cooperates together with other Baptist churches, and they give tremendous amounts to missions and uh, benevolence. Now, some house churches are afraid of their own shadow. They are isolationist. They are ingrown, and that's not healthy. But that's not right either. So the right thing is network together. And we're not opposed to having big meetings occasionally where whoever wants to from multiple house churches can come together for a big praise and worship time and encouragement time. And that's a good thing to do every now and then as well because that keeps you plugged in with other people and reminds you that you're part of something much bigger than what's going on in your living room. Sure. Well, there's a, there is one final concern that my wife had, and, and that's with how yeah. they can be perceived by others. Uh, local communities might be more inclined to partner with typical churches because they have an air of legitimacy that maybe house churches don't have. Um, and, and, you know, I, I might be a little concerned about inviting family, friends, and coworkers and others to a house church because as unfortunate as, uh, unfortunate as it is, a small house church might seem strange, maybe even cultish, and one might be less likely to, an ex- to accept an invitation to come along. H- how would you respond yeah. to concerns like these? That's a very valid concern, and that goes back to what I said earlier about to a European, Western, Christian mindset, Christianity is so associated with church buildings that to not have a church in a building, you're suspected of being as, in, as a part of a cult. Right. So you could argue that you should have some kind of a 
formal meeting place so you don't look like a cult. But, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons all have their buildings, too. But anyway, having said <laughs> that, um, that is a concern. And I think that's one reason it's important for the church officially to be aligned with some famous and well-known statement of faith from church history. And like, like we've already talked about, ours is the First London Baptist Confession of 1644 or 46. Well, that's recognized as, oh, well, they're Baptists. So a lot of times when I'm talking to somebody and I tell them about doing house church, I, I, I tell them we do Baptist house church. Well, okay, they now they kind of know. Oh, we're kind of Baptist in their view. Right. Yeah. And so I think it is important to you, – you have to convince people of your credibility. And so it's important for house churches to have recognized elders and to be associated with historic Christian orthodoxy. And being in a home is a disadvantage in our culture from that perspective. It certainly is, and there's no denying it. Okay. Well, let's move on then from house church uh, to something else that you alluded to a little bit ago, this idea of participatory church meetings. Uh, at what might be a typical modern Sunday service like at a church like mine, after after children have been dropped off in their you know their, their groups, their segregated age groups, at a certain time a worship band will lead the adults in, in sanctuary in a few songs, and then there'll be some announcements and tithes and offerings, and then there'll be a sermon delivered by a staff pastor, followed perhaps by a closing worship song, and with the exception of singing along during the worship, those of us in the pews. Well, literally or figuratively, figuratively speaking anyway, we're not really participating. We're just sort of sitting and listening to whoever's on stage or at the pulpit. Now, from what I can gather, uh, you advocate something that's about as different from that as could be. Can, can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. I, I don't doubt that what you described can be quite edifying. And the Bible says the prime directive for a church meeting is that it's got to be edifying. The question is, what's the best way to accomplish that? And in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, now, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, word of instruction, revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Then he goes on to give the regulations for how it's to be done. But notice he says, when you come together, everyone has something. Hmm. Well, if we took out the word everyone and inserted the words only one, that's going to, only one is more descriptive of what goes on today in a modern church service, because very few people actually contribute to the meeting. So we do see there's a big difference, and our belief is that Paul here is not merely describing what they did, he's prescribing that this is the best way for God's people to gather to see the church strengthened. Because he goes on to write in the same chapter toward the end of it. He says, now look, what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Mm. Command! All right, so now when I was a Baptist uh, pastor, whenever I would get up to preach, well, I was aware of this passage toward the end of my seven-year stint there, and I became more and more uncomfortable with the fact that we weren't doing that mm. at all. And, of course, I'd like to think the preaching was pretty good since I was doing it, but that does not wasn't the point. And so you see churches today have they, they've done sort of this. And so when we come together, we the, the let's say I'll just pick on what I'm doing in my church right now. The, the host 
the doors of the host's home open at 10 a.m. And so starting at 10 a.m., people start to show up. And from 10 to 10.30, people are coming in and they're taking food for the potluck or pot providence meal. And they're uh, <laughs> taking the kids in and getting settled and getting a cup of coffee and visiting about a half hour window. At 10.30, we begin the participatory phase of the meeting, which we read about in 1 Corinthians 14. And we, we really do try to follow the guidelines that are there. And the musicians will play a song, and that's everybody's cue to come in and sit down and start singing. And by the time the song or the medley is over, everyone's assembled, everyone's sitting, and we have begun the participatory phase of the meeting. Now, you know, if, in the old days when I was a kid, you'd go to a full-service gas station, Chris, and they'd come out and do everything for you. You remember that? They'd clean the windshield sure. and check the tires and check the oil and fill the gas up. When in modern day worship services, as you've described them, it's, it's, it's a service, just like a full service gas station where you just drive up and watch and it happens. It's, but that's not the way we do it. It's not a service at all. It is designed to be worshipful and it's edifying. But after that first song, there's no bulletin. Nothing is planned in advance or you know, rarely is anything planned in advance. We sing as much or as little as people will request a song. Mm. Maybe somebody will bring a CD player and play a song for us and talk about the words of a song. Or maybe a guy will write a song and teach it to us or hear one on the radio and assemble the words and teach it to us and we all sing it together. And we've got uh, two, three guitars and a mandolin and a banjo player and a uh, piano. And, uh, and they don't lead the worship. They facilitate the worship. Mm. We They'll pick songs themselves, but so does everybody else. So we sing as much or as little as people want to. And then same with the prayer. There's not a specific time for the music to end. In between the music, people will pray, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. People will bring testimonies about things God have done in their lives, uh, answer to prayer or the meeting of a need or an evangelistic opportunity, something somebody learned in, a, in his quiet time or maybe through a preacher on the radio. Everything said has got to be designed to edify, to strengthen, to encourage, to build up everybody else. And, of course, it's, it's got to be true as well. We, it's what our elders are for. They're the quality control guys. I mean, uh, everything said has got to be true and in keeping with historic Christian orthodoxy has got to be edifying and if it's not, it's the elder's job to deal with that. And then, same with teaching though, Chris, it's not I mean, we we teach as much or as little in the meeting as somebody's been burned to do that during the week. Hmm. And we encourage our teachers to keep it shorter rather than longer <laughs> so that there's plenty of time for other people to bring teachings if they've been led to do that. Now, as an elder... Every week I have a teaching tucked away. And if nobody teaches, I've got one. Mm. But a lot of weeks I don't teach at all because so many other people have brought teachings, and, and that's good. We do our in-depth, really serious Bible study at a different time than this because if a teacher goes on for an hour in that meeting, it will obviously squelch the participation of sure. everyone else. And so... So when I say it's not scripted, it really isn't. And so the rules are, anything you say has got to be edifying, which part of that means it's 
obviously got to be true and orthodox. Two, only one person at a time can speak. So there's got to be order. And um, so we go until it's obvious everyone who had something to share has shared it. And, and usually we'll run till about between 12 and 1230 and, and kids start getting hungry. They're in there with us. And uh, it gets kind of quiet and somebody will say, well, uh, has anybody got anything else to share? If not, we'll say we transition to the Lord's Supper. And if nobody's got anything else, then we transition into the Lord's Supper. And the way we do that is the second phase of the meeting that we'll talk about later. But that's uh, everybody brings food, and we have the Lord's Supper as an actual meal. And in the center of the meal is the one cup and the one loaf representing the body and blood of Jesus. But that is that time of the meeting is a tremendous time of fellowship as well and one-on-one edification. Hmm. And so we believe that these two things together every Lord's Day are the primary way God builds up his people. And I know since the Reformation, you could figuratively say that Martin Luther ripped out the mass and put in an altar. And a lot of pastors, Chris, get really upset with us because we've de-emphasized preaching. And right. they just see that almost as the unpardonable sin. Well, we love preaching. We believe it's important. Evangelism is important. In-depth Bible study is important. But we don't see that in the New Testament in their Lord's Day church meetings. There were teachings. But it was not so pastor-centered at that point. We would do that at another time. And so um, the good thing about house church is, again, see, when I said it's reproducible, it's not centered on one person. You don't have to have a building. And you, a lot of the pastor's and elder's job is to encourage the brethren during the week to share, to think about edifying things to share, to help people if they... The guys that never talk, you try to get them to talk more. The guys that talk too much, you sit on them a little bit. The guys that <laughs> say things that aren't edifying, you help them to understand why it's not edifying and what is. And so um, that's what our participatory meetings are like. They're not services. Right. They're truly uh, participatory according to the rules of 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, but... Certainly, certainly, your your case couldn't be solely based on First Corinthians fourteen, or else I don't think that you would be willing to call this a pattern. Are, is, are there other examples in the New Testament of uh, words that would seem to lend themselves toward a meeting like this, as opposed to the kind of services we see today? Well, you know, that's a good question, Chris. Well, the first I would say, I, I think every evangelical would say, if the Bible commands something, we ought to obey it, right? Mm. Yes. And it's commanded. He says, this is the Lord's command. So the first thing I would say, Chris, is God only has to command it once. I mean, how many times has he got to command it before we obey? Okay. Fair enough. I've, had, I've talked to theological liberals who said they don't believe in the virgin birth because it's only, what is it, I think one time in the New Testament. Well, how many times has it got to be there before you believe it? So, sure. Um, so first I would say that, Chris, this this is actually in a slightly different category because it's commanded. Well, but well, let me just throw the wrench in there, which is just that so, some people might say, okay, maybe that was uh, the Lord's command through Paul to the Corinthians. And so I, and I'm not saying that I would support that contention, but I'm saying if, if somebody were to try to say that 1 Corinthians 14 was for a specific congregation in a specific area at a specific time, um, are there other examples of, of things said in Scripture which might suggest that this was a, a, to be applied more broadly? Well, yeah, because, I mean, again, 
we've seen what are some universal expectations for all the churches. Like, as in all the congregations of the saints, da-da-da-da. You've got in Hebrews chapter 10, when I was when I used to go on visitation and go see people that hadn't come to the church in 20 years and try to get them to come, you know, in Hebrews, I think it's in chapter 10, he says, um, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I used to always tell these people that you need to come to church. But he goes on to say, he said, he says, uh, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now that means before you go to church, you, you are supposed to have considered how you're going to spur everybody else there, one another, on to loving good deeds. Well, now that alone tells you the way modern churches operate. You don't have to do that. You show up, you watch a show, and you go home. <laughs> Most people are merely, they, they don't, you know, you ask, you ask me, what church do you attend? Right. It's like attending a theater. What no, church you do you go to? <laughs> yeah. You participate. So however you want to set your church up, it should be of such a, there should be in such a way that it's important for everyone who comes to have considered before he gets there how he's going to spur the other people onto love and good deeds. And in other words, there needs to be a avenue for him to exercise that ministry. And then he says, let us not give up the meeting together, but let us encourage one another. So again, our church meetings should be about encouraging one another, not just the pastor encouraging everybody encouraging one another. So I think you could argue that the worship service, which, by the way, you, you won't find that in the New Testament. Mm. What we do today is not in the New Testament. So you've already invented something that it's it, it's done in such a way that makes Hebrews 10, 5, almost irrelevant. Yeah. So, 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 and then also one other thing I'd say, Chris, is most of what we know and practice as churches today about the Lord's Supper comes from what the one place Paul wrote it, First Corinthians eleven. Just like First Corinthians fourteen is about the interactive church meeting. Well, if I want to reject doing the Lord's Supper because it's only in First Corinthians eleven, <laughs> I mean that's the same logic that people are using to reject what we see in First Corinthians fourteen. So if you're not going to reject what he says about the Lord's Supper, why would you want to reject what he says about how to do church meetings? And and two, Chris, I would point out most of these most of these Christians early on were of course Jewish. They'd come out of the synagogue, and when you think about how the synagogue operated, they were quite open to audience participation. For instance, in Acts 13, and, and that's how Paul evangelized. That was his. Method of operation, it says on the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. Now, they're com- as far as I know, they're complete strangers. Yeah. It says, after the reading of the law and prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Mm. Well, he said it, didn't he? Yeah. And so in every city, they entered the synagogue of the Jews and they spoke in such a manner that multitudes of people believed. It doesn't matter whether you're in Thessalonica or Iconium or Berea or Athens or Corinth or Ephesus. This is so open were these synagogues that Paul had the opportunity to evangelize that way. 
I guarantee if if the synagogues were around like First Baptist Church, Paul never could have done what he did. Sure. So again, when the Jews came out of that, these same people got saved, left the synagogue, started church. You would expect that the church meetings are going to be that way too. Okay. And, and I, we see in First Corinthians fourteen and Hebrews ten that yeah, it does look like they were that way. Well, and in your book, you actually point out that there's some scholarly evidence that that's what happened as well. Do you do you want to point to any of that as well? Well, um, it, when you start reading what the scholars have said, again, every denomination, it seems to be fairly uncontroversial. I don't have any of the quotations in front of me right now, but the the scholars who read this and study the early church are going to tell you that they had participatory church meetings. So again, you know, if, if I'm the only guy that ever saw this in the Bible, it's probably wrong. But when <laughs> these scholars see that, I think, well, that is what they did. Yeah, they might just be onto something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, now, I understand what you said, that the Bible does not seem to depict teaching as the focus of the church meeting. I, I get that. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of us, um, a lot of us look forward to learning you know, something about the original language and context of, of something that's written in Scripture, what the Bible has to say when it comes to some area of theology. Um, if there's not a full-time pastor who is, you know, who, that's his job, who can afford the time and the money for intense study and formal education, stuff like that, uh, yeah. how is it that this need for real deep biblical teaching can be met if, if that's not the focus of a house church? Well, I would say that we're, I want to point out, we're not against having full-time elders who are qualified, those who are gifted in the area of teaching or evangelism, because that is important. Uh, Jesus sent the apostles out saying that they were to teach, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that they were, the early church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in Romans 12, Paul talks about very spiritual gifts, and one of them, of course, is teaching. He says, if a man's gift is teaching, let him teach. And First Corinthians 12, talking about all the spiritual gifts. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Ephesians 4 talks about the ministry of some guy called a pastor teacher. So, yeah, that's important. Some, it, But it's hard to make you live in off one house church, as you have anticipated. Yeah. So, we understand that in Ephesians 4, these gifts that Jesus has given to the church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, are itinerant ministries that because they service multiple churches, have a wider range of people to minister to, are more likely going to be full-time. And also in Paul's letter to Timothy, he talks, and of course Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, and he's talking about some elders are worthy of double honor clearly talking about support there mm. and so if you've got a, a pastor teacher or an elder that's that's servicing multiple churches he can more likely come closer to making his living from that so first thing we would say is it's it's important to have special ministry times of teaching that people from multiple churches can come to now if your church network is not developed to that point then what we encourage people to do is, A, turn the radio on. Mm. There's a lot of wonderful Bible teachers on the radio. 
you know, I came in this morning before our thing listening to my old pastor, Adrian Rogers, in Memphis, Tennessee. And, boy, that was a blessing. And another day I was driving to a ball game, take my son to football, listening to R.C. Sproul. And uh, what a blessing. Yeah. And so you can first turn radio on. And, in fact, we wouldn't say if that's the main source of teaching you're getting is from these guys on the radio, you ought to be sending them money. Mm. But then, but beyond that, we also encourage you, if there's no teachers in your church and, and no, don't have access, then go to a traditional church in your area that has a teacher, a guy, a guy who's gifted at teaching, who believes the scriptures, and go enjoy his teaching ministry. Now, they'll think it's church. You know better. It's really his teaching ministry. But go there. <laughs> Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, not to be divisive, not to sneak away members. I'm not talking about that. Go be blessed by their teaching ministry and give money mm. to support what he's doing until such a time as God sends you a teacher in your church or there's a network of house churches that can support uh, a full-time teacher. Now, on our church, we do our heavy-duty teaching on Wednesday night from 7.30 to 9. And we'll have people, and over the years, I've got a an elder from a local Presbyterian church that comes. I've got a guy that's... Uh, very a deacon in a Baptist church that comes. I mean, over the years, we've had a, a Methodists and all kind of people come in, in addition to house church people from several different house churches to our Wednesday night teaching sessions. And, we, you know, we're just happy to bless the body of Christ at large in the whole area. But but it's designed for people involved with house churches who appreciate one in-depth teaching. That's when we do it. Okay. So, now, so that's, yeah. No, I got you. I understand. I think that's a good answer. Um, back in 2005, uh, you wrote a letter to a friend of mine, D.D. Warren, host of the Preterist podcast. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the things I read that led, uh, convinced me to have you on. But anyway, in, in that letter, you explained that hyperpreterism had become an issue in a couple of your churches. And this makes me wonder if one downside to small participatory church meetings might be that those who want to promote heresies like hyperpreterism can get a hearing that they wouldn't have otherwise had at a typical modern Sunday service and and spread what Paul called a faith wrecking gangrene. Is there such is there such a danger in participatory house church meetings and if so, how do you mitigate that risk? Yes, there is that danger. A large number of people who will be willing to consider coming to a house church are those who are already outside of traditional church but for all the wrong reasons. Hmm. And so if a guy's a social misfit, he can't get along with anybody, he's outside the church. Or if a guy's a rebel, he's going to be outside traditional church. Or, in the, your example, if he holds to aberrant theology, he might have been asked not to come back because of his uh, heresies. And so, sadly, because to a lot of people, house church is undefined they don't know what it is but they, it looks like a good opportunity for them to wreak havoc in a new place they'll show up especially the lure of a participatory meeting where they think they can have the floor and as a friend of mine said bugs are drawn to the light and so you're going to have some theological bugs fly in the window <laughs> this is where you need elders elders are important as uh, the keepers of the truth and of course they teach the truth but they also detect heresy and they deal with it and so it's important for every church to have elders, or at least leaders who are well grounded in the truth, as is one of the qualifications for elders. Again, if you have a statement of faith that you go by, for instance, the first line of Baptist confession, or whatever that you're comfortable with, that alone is usually enough to repel a would-be 
heretic mm. or advocate you know something he thinks is the second reformation and so I, i'm acknowledging the threat i'm giving i think reasonable solutions to that we were caught off guard uh, when we first started doing house church because and as a baptist pastor i never ran into the kinds of bad theology and crazy thinking that I did when I started doing house church. And the reason was, if you say you're a Baptist church or you're a Presbyterian church, whatever, you just put up a filter. Yeah. And that filters out a lot of trouble. Well, house church a lot of times doesn't have that. So we didn't realize, you know, Custer, one of Custer's last words were, don't worry, boys, there'll be plenty of Indians for everybody. And that's kind of the way it is when you start doing house church. Man, I didn't know how many heretics were in the woods, but <laughs> whoo, yeah, whoo. and I, I was I was not ready. I was just I never anticipated that, and it caught us off guard. But I know better now, and so we advise anybody starting house church to um, identify with historic orthodoxy, come up with a statement of faith on your own or one that's famous from history, and have somebody in charge who recognizes problems errors when they, when he sees it and um during world war ii in the battle of midway you know the japanese fleet the american fleet there there was and they all had airplanes out looking for each other and uh it was a lot of confusion and there's an american torpedo squadron that just looked down and there was a japanese fleet well their duty was to torpedo the japanese fleet well these these were big lumbering bombers, and they had torpedoes on the bottom of the planes, like uh, which would be fired from a submarine. But they would go down to the just about ten feet above the water and fly in a straight line toward the ship and drop a torpedo into the water. Well, they attacked the Japanese fleet, but they didn't have any fighter escort because they'd gotten separated from them. And so the Japanese Zero fighters pounced on these bombers, and they decimated that whole squadron, shot down every plane. Every man lost his life except one. He's a guy from here in Georgia. Well, I, I would liken that to a house church without elders. I mean, if, if the, you know, the, if the bombers are the church, the elders are the fighter escort that are supposed to be protecting the church against spiritual Japanese zeros. And, buddy, let me tell you, those bad guys are out there. So a church without elder fighter escort is just liable to be picked off by Satan. And it just, again, shows the importance of leadership. And one criticism we have of, the house church movement at large is it grows too quick hmm. and they, they send out people without qualified leadership and they're so vulnerable to uh, attack from the enemy. And uh, so that's a very real concern, but I think it can be met if you're prepared for it. Okay. Well, we've talked about house churches. We've talked about participatory church meetings. And in the future, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you'll come back to join me to talk about some of the other patterns that you guys advocate, like the Lord's Supper and congregational consensus. But uh, as we begin to wrap things up today, I have what might be a difficult question for you. Um, consider someone like me who's very actively involved with this church, serves behind kiosks for Sunday services, leads a church small group, is called on to help out with study questions to go along with sermon series and stuff like that. Even if somebody like me came to agree with you about house churches, I don't think that I'd be comfortable with abandoning my church to go to join or start a house church. Um, we feel like we're part of what is basically a, a family, albeit one that is you know considerably larger than maybe one of yours. What do you recommend that someone in a position like mine do who you know if they find themselves convinced of what you're advocating? 
ultimately that's going to between, be between you and the Lord. When you look at church history, you always see this kind of a struggle. And sometimes people who see one thing that most of the people in the church don't remain in that church, and they're called Puritans. They try to purify the church from within. Mm. Other people get to the point they feel like they've just got to be free to start and be involved with a church that's going to do it the right way, put that in quotation marks. And those people tend to be called, what, separatists. And so, uh, for instance, the early Baptists, in that sense, were separatists. And uh, they they didn't say the Anglicans, the Presbyterians weren't Christians. They just said, you know, this thing of baptism is so important, we feel like we need to be free to do that. Other people stayed in the Anglican church and tried to purify it. So that's going to be up to each person, Chris, and it's not a comfortable position to be in. I think you do want to look at the greater good is the ox in the ditch. I mean, there are reasons not to follow the New Testament ways. And if, obviously, I'm sure the church you're in is a a blessing to you and it edifies people and people get saved and discipled, and amen, that's wonderful. But stay with it. But there could be a time come down the road where you meet some new people that want to start a new church and and without taking people divisively away from your existing church, it could well be that your existing church is willing to sponsor you to officially bless you to go out and start a new church that will reach people that are not going to come to your church the way it is now or to work with you alongside with you as you or maybe even do a a tandem thing where you participate in their meetings some and and do house church things. Uh, as well. So it doesn't have to be an either or situation. It, you have to be led of the Lord. What you don't want to do is be divisive about it. Okay. And, uh, because, you know, the Bible says reject a heretic after a first and second warning in the King James. The Greek word heresis is really means factious. And so you could be factious with the truth if you're driving a wedge between brothers. So if you get to the point and God stirs your heart that you're just so uncomfortable, uh, then I would seek the blessing of the existing church to send you out to start something new. Uh, that that has worked successfully. Uh, there's a church I've worked with in another country where one of the elders arranged for us to come over there and teach our New Testament church life. Well, he's been an elder in this church. It's a very traditional Reformed Baptist church for 15 years. And he totally believes in what we're doing. But... He's hung in there with that Reformed Baptist Church because he believes God would have him to stay there to use him to influence them that the whole church would come over into this direction. So this is a church of about 200 people, and it's 50 of them ready to do New Testament church life right now. But they're all looking to this elder who's a real peacemaker hmm. and uh, a man of unity. And so um, he's hoping to persuade the whole church. So people do it all different ways, Chris, and... Um, you, what you don't want to do is be divisive and and unedifying in your actions. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Now, I typically like to give guests an opportunity to leave my listeners and me with a parting message of sorts. What What would you most like us to take away from our discussion today? <laughs> I would like to challenge people with the thought that the apostles knew what they were doing when in the way they set up churches. And they did that as an example for us to follow, not in a legalistic accounting kind of a way, but because it is the best venue for the Lord to use us 
to mature in Christ, to expand his kingdom, to reach people with the gospel, to wisely use our resources to support missions and the needy. And so the greatest blessing, we believe, is to do things the way of the apostles. And the early church did things one way, we do it another. We haven't just added to it, but we've done the exact opposite. Instead of church houses, we have house churches. Instead of participatory meetings, we have worship services. Instead of smaller churches, we've got larger churches. Instead of congregational consensus, we've got elder command. Instead of participatory church meetings, we have one-man shows. Instead of uh, the Lord's Supper as a full meal, we do it as a token ritual. And instead of doing it every week, typically it's done once a quarter. So we're just challenging the wisdom of such a wholesale departure from the New Testament way. And um, so I would challenge people to pray about and read the scriptures and see what the attitude of the apostles was toward churches doing things their way. If you could write a letter to the apostles in Jerusalem and say, hey, we started a new church. How should we do it? Would they write back and say each church should be unique and different and you need to get with the Holy Spirit? Or would they say, do it our way. We follow Jesus, you follow us. What would they say? That's a good question. I'll leave that with my listeners to ponder. And, um, you know, like I said, I hope to have you back in the future to talk about some of those other issues you mentioned. But in the meantime, where can my listeners uh, and I go to access your website, uh, learn more, and get our hands on the various resources that you make available? The website is ntrf.org, New Testament Restoration, Reformation Fellowship, ntrf.org. On there, you'll see all kind of resources. We've got books, videos, online articles, interactive seminary courses. And in fact, if any of your readers or listeners want to, Chris, we'll be happy to send them a free copy of the book, House Church. It's a compendium of about 10 authors, most of whom are former traditional pastors, all of whom now doing church more of a New Testament way. And we deal with the basics of New Testament church life. So if you'll send us an email through the website and your address asking for the book House Church, we'll be very pleased to send you that. And let me just say as a teaser of all the changes we've made in our church practice, Chris, the one single change that given us the most blessing has been one we haven't talked about, and that's celebrating the Lord's Supper as an actual fellowship meal centered around the, the bread and the wine. So I would encourage people to go ahead and look at our website, what we've got about the Lord's Supper, because I think of all the changes the church can make, that would bring them the most blessing. Well, like I said, I, I want to talk to you about that in the future, you know, next time you can come back on. I actually have my own thoughts about that, and I also um, uh, think that it ought to be a meal. I just happen to think that it ought to be a celebration uh, that goes along with the celebration of Passover, but maybe we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, thanks so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, you know, you and I will keep in touch uh, in the future. So thanks for joining me today. It's been a real honor, Chris. Thanks for talking to me. Okay, that was Steve Atkerson from NTRF on house churches and participatory church meetings. And I'll admit that while I'm a little skeptical still uh, and not yet completely convinced, I did find some of the things that he had to say challenging. On the other hand, perhaps you would like to challenge Steve uh, with some criticisms or uh, challenges. And if you have those kinds of things, please send them to me. Um, Steve has agreed to come on again in the future to discuss some of the other uh, New Testament patterns of church practice that NTRF advocates. And that might be a perfect opportunity to present to him some of the challenges that you might have, uh, biblical or um, practical or, or whatever. 
So send those to me uh, if you have them. And in the meantime, I hope that you enjoyed the episode, and I hope that you'll enjoy two weeks from now when Larry Dixon uh, is joining me to discuss the traditional view of hell uh, in contrast with annihilationism. So I hope you'll join me for that upcoming episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>